fighting through episode 26, The Zilkin Letters, a veteran reminisces. More great unpublished history. For security reasons, there are no known photos of Fred Zilkin. But I've managed to get hold of a very mysterious looking sketch of him, which you can find in the show notes. I don't say any more, because as Wilf Shaw admitted in a previous show, I'm still afraid of the long arm of the law. If you want to hear Fred's secret World War II revelations and the story behind the sketch of him, Listen in now to episode 26, The Zilkin Letters. I didn't get far before Jerry had me in range and dropped a few mortars all around me. I froze as each bomb seemed to get nearer. I could feel the heat off them as they exploded. The order came through from Battalion HQ to fire off the rounds. I stood by on the phone in a bloody deep hole and number one mortar fired. Then number two. Then number three mortar fired. But the bomb hit the overhanging branches of a tree and blew it up and caught all the mortar bombs primed lying around. All those knocked out tanks. The lorries the armoured cars, the graves, the mines, thousands we laid. I often think out there now, all is quiet. The spirits of all the gallant men who were killed there. Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear first-hand memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. I hope no one minded me having a bit of fun with all the mystery about this episode, but I found that sketch of Fred Zilkin just irresistible. He looks like some enemy spy, all pensive with his distant expression and the TT insignia. Fred was actually a British soldier, and we're going to hear highlights from a number of letters that he sent to Comrade Wilf Shaw over a number of years after the war. In all honesty, though, the letters do contain quite a few startling revelations, one or two which could have genuinely got people in serious trouble had they been known at the time of happening. More in a minute, but do stay with me to enjoy some more great unpublished history. Just a bit of feedback to share with you now. Michael Nibby from USA posted on Facebook, I just finished listening to the show, amazing and heartwarming. I love hearing these memoirs, as both my grandfathers served during World War II, one in the Pacific, the other in Europe. I never got to hear their stories. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for posting that compliment and contribution to the show. I've also heard from Faye Pineda from uh, Iowa in the USA, 
and Faye said, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now and I absolutely love it. It's so exciting and humbling to listen to the stories of such brave souls. I can't get enough of Wilf Shaw. He's always got a joke. <laughs> Thanks, Faye, and uh, for you or anybody else who likes Wilf Shaw, I've got him telling another funny story in the PS, so do stay to the end of the show. Uh, I followed up on this contact with Faye, and I've discovered that uh, when I asked her if she had any relatives in the war, she said that I've been working on a family tree with my maternal grandmother and I found out that my great uncle was. He was an engineer. I'm hoping to find out more. My father had a cousin in World War Two, and he was British. But again, I'm still looking for more information. So uh, good luck with your search, Faye, on that front and uh, give us an update if you find anything else out. You can apply to the UK National Archives for details of your relatives service records and i'm putting a link in the show notes which should help you in that direction but basically if you're the next of kin you're entitled to get the records free if you're not next of kin then i think it costs about 30 pounds sterling and despite a warning on the website that it can take about six months i found out in practice it really only takes a few weeks so uh, as i say link in the show notes I've had contact from uh, Tristan in Australia. I have to say I've enjoyed the hell out of your show so far. Really riveting stuff. I was raised on the island of Portland and many of the guys who left for France on D-Day left from nearby Weymouth and the naval base there. I get chills thinking about those young men who had the guts to get up in a firefight and give it right back to Jerry. My family emigrated to Australia in 1989. It's a shame as I would have loved to have had access to some of the World War II sites as my interest and appreciation grew. My great-grandfather was one of the last men to be evacuated from Dunkirk. Keep up the great work. Tristan James, Australia via Facebook. Tristan, thanks for that. Your grandfather must have been part of the Brave Rear Guard, many of whom were captured. If you know any more about what he got up to in Dunkirk or even the rest of the war, do let me know. Maybe send me a pic I can post up on the website. Which listener is fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk for everything. Contact, pics, show notes, social media, etc. It's all there. Now, just a very brief follow-up from episode 26 when Teresa Stoker mentioned her father, Corporal Jock Stewart. There are just a couple of more interesting bits that Teresa added later. Um, she says, I suspect Dad was at Dunkirk on the beaches. When I was young and we went to the beach, Dad used to watch me like a hawk when I was in the sea. And one day I said to him to come in the water... And he said the last time that he went in the water, he very nearly never came back up. And my dad's sister told me that dad and another soldier accompanied Rudolf Hess from Mary Hill in Glasgow Police Station to London by train. Dad was from Mary Hill. Oh, wow, Teresa, how's that for 15 minutes of fame to add to the six years your dad fought as a hero? Well done, that man. OK, apologies and mistakes now. Uh, 
one or two silly mistakes in the previous episode. I think they were pretty obvious, so I hope you've forgotten or forgiven, even if you noticed them. But uh, one was where I twice said that the Battle of Wadi Akaris in North Africa was on 6th of March 1943, when I blooming well knew it was 6th of April. So uh, sorry about that if anybody spotted it. Moving on. It's funny, but uh, when you record stuff and you're reading it sometimes from paper, it's very easy for your eyes to see one thing and something else to come out of your mouth. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think everybody does it. So uh, hands up from me on this occasion. Right. Whilst I'm on about words used in previous episodes, you might enjoy a wry smile when you hear me ask if you've noticed me using the word shifty a few times here and there. And of course, shifty means a look. So a quick shifty is a quick look. Shifty kite was um, a reconnaissance aircraft. Of course, Shufti was brought into the show a while back by Sergeant Doug Gray talking about a Shufti kite. So I decided to use it a few times in the show since then, just for fun. So uh, tell me, have you slipped the word into your own conversations since you heard it? Drop me a line if you have. Uh, talking about words not used as much as they once were, tiffin is another meaning like tea and cakes or an afternoon snack. Dad was having tiffin with a pal when a shell came over and wounded him after D-Day. I bet that put him off his jam sandwich or whatever he was eating. Uh, I dare someone to use... <laughs> I dare someone to use tiffin in a sentence and see what reaction you get. Do let me know. Has anyone else got a wartime word no longer in common use? Get in touch. On with the show. Um... Fred Zilkin and Wilf Shaw were good pals, both in the 6th Green Howards. Uh, in the Signal Platoon at various times, sometimes fighting, uh, radioing messages, sometimes repairing lines. They spent a lot of the war together, and that included Alamein, Sicily and Normandy, amongst other things. After the war, they went their own ways, but kept in touch, and in the early 90s, Fred and Wilf exchanged many letters. There's only the one bit of backstory I'll mention right now, and that's about Marston House in Froome, Somerset, England, and it's a country house where troops were billeted in 1941, before they went abroad. There's plenty about it in Wikipedia, but one story I've heard of is about US troops driving jeeps up and down the stairs, <laughs> driving jeeps up and down the staircases at some point during the war. So, uh, Lady Marston of 2018, if you have strange tyre marks in your hallway, you know who to blame. So, this show is looking at Fred's letters, sometimes responding to reminiscences from Wilf, but mostly pulling new memories of his own out of the ether or from diaries he'd written. I've sometimes tried to bring common threads together, but everything won't be in perfect historical order by any means, any more than Fred's letters were. I'll let Wilf himself introduce Fred... I have many letters which Fred wrote to me up to a few years ago. Great lad was Fred. He succumbed to Parkinson's eventually. He tried to the end to write to me. Listener Wilf has mentioned Fred enough in his previous stories, 
for us to know that he thought a lot about him. Uh, this is a short section of one of my previous interviews with Wilf. Tell us about his character. Sort of a chap he was. He, he was a bit of a humorist at times, you know. But, uh, pretty serious, and he, he, he didn't didn't put himself about a lot, you know. And uh, but I, I can tell you one instance. Uh, I can give you an instance of one of his uh, sense of humour. You know. Well, listener, I'm going to leave it there now. If you want to hear Wilf's funny story about Fred, uh, please stay listening right through to the end to the PS. And it's a uh, good, good old funny soldier story. Um, I'm now mostly going to read this as if it's Fred himself who's talking. So close your eyes and picture this brave old hero of a veteran whilst he tells things like they really were. Yes, I do remember Jimmy Hanna. His brother did get the VC, but not posthumously. I think he beat out flames with his bare hands in his Lancaster bomber on its way back from a raid in Germany. Jimmy Hanna, I recall. When we were at a billet, it was a hotel overlooking Studland Bay on the south coast. I remember he used to put a company sergeant major's crown on his sleeve before he went into the town on a night. Whatever happened to him? That Esco Canal Caper of yours you wrote about, wasn't that where we were going across in a small rowboat? I got across okay. But then the boat sank and the others had to swim across. Some do. About Sicily, Wilf. When we were at that billet, Castle Sillypen, whatever the name was, you've got the photo, Wilf. A chap, a private in the platoon, he did a drawing of me, side view, just head and neck. Forage cap and TT flash on the shoulder, done in pencil. And he signed it Mitch. I've still got that drawing, found it amongst my army bits and pieces. I got a frame from Woolworths just recently for it. I don't know what happened to Mitch. I can't even remember what he looked like. About that Sicily incident, Wolf. Did you know that a lot of men in the Scotch regiment on their way to Italy refused to pick up their kit, etc., and march from the transit camp? They were like ourselves, casualties from the desert, and were being used as reinforcements for the Italian do. Some had the military medal, and all they wanted was to get back to their wives and girlfriends. They were all court-martialed, and two or three were sentenced to be shot. Later, they had their sentences commuted. Anyway, that was the only mutiny recorded in the British Army during World War Two. I saw the TV programme on the mutiny, Wilf. Thought you or I could have been in that position. We were lucky. I think in my case, I'd have landed up at Monte Cassino, and you know what that was like. I remember that song we used to sing, Bury Me Out in the Desert, etc. Another incident I recall, Wolf, during the Normandy campaign. We were moving up on our mortar carriers. God knows where we were, but mortar shells from the Germans were dropping all around us, and two of our sergeants don't recall their names, decided they'd had enough and retreated. Later I heard they were caught and were sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. 
They'd be out now, Wolf, 1944 to 64. For myself, I was scared to death of being up front, but even more scared of running away. Another thing, Wolf, that waddy accurate do in Tunisia. Me and Jimmy Wilson were with D Company. As we were advancing against those Italians, I think it was D Company, Jim was carrying the 18 set. I was operating and carrying the batteries. As we advanced across this open ground, shells, mortar shells, were dropping around like rain. I said to Jim, let's make a run of it, get into a slit trench, but then a mortar bomb shell landed. Must have been at our feet. A deafening explosion, and I felt a sharp pain in my top right hand and thigh at the same instant. I saw Jimmy riddled with shrapnel, crumpled to the floor. I couldn't do anything for him. Ever since that day, Wolf, I've often thought, why did I only get one piece and Jimmy got death? There was just two feet between us. Jimmy had lengthened the lead between the 18 set and batteries just a couple of days before whilst we were moving up. I can't understand how Jimmy was killed and I got away with just one piece of shrapnel. It's still in my back. I didn't know this until I went for an X-ray for an appendix operation. We spent Christmas Day 1941 in Iraq near Kirkuk, didn't we? When we left Kirkuk, I was put on a charge for not lifting some 200 feet of cable from the ground. It was solid mud. Remember, the rain came down like stair rods. I cut it off. What could I do? I did a week's pack drill in Cyprus for my sentence. The sergeant who was in charge of pack drill took us behind a hill and we sat down and relaxed. He was a good bloke, a real sergeant. What were we doing up there in Iraq? We motored down from Iraq through Syria, etc. God knows where we were and we arrived in the Ghazala line around 2nd of February 42. It was here that Ginger Wright had a do with the sergeant major. Can't remember his name. We were digging a hole for a cookhouse. And the sergeant major had a pick and was able to pull down lots of earth, much more than Wright could shovel out. Wright got so mad because he couldn't shovel out more earth and threatened to hit the sergeant major with his shovel. And he did. The sergeant major turned round and asked if anybody had seen Wright do this, but nobody said a word. It's sad to learn that Ginger Wright's dead now. And Woods. About the desert, Wolf, at night, listening to the tins of petrol in the dumps when on guard, contracting and ping-ponging and making that noise. And when we were on guard, getting dug in under the tarpaulin covering the emergency rations, and drinking the tins of carnation milk. Also, I think some of us, I know you did, drank the water from the radiators of the Bren gun carriers. Lying on my back, mouth under the drain plug of the carrier, some blokes used the hollow aerials of their 18 sets to siphon the water from the 44-gallon drums in the emergency dumps. I could have got shot for that. What about that cam scene? That great cloud of sand and wind that engulfed us from ground to sky and the mirages we saw. Where is all my kit? Somewhere in the desert on that retreat from Ghazala. All those knocked out tanks, the lorries, 
the armoured cars, the graves, the mines, thousands we laid. I often think out there now all is quiet, the spirits of all the gallant men who were killed there. I wonder if all the tanks, trucks, etc. were collected up, all the mines lifted. Wilf, you had a rough time there at Alamein. I was lucky, I missed it all. I got a dose of jaundice, something to do with the infection of the kidneys or liver, so I was in hospital. I rejoined the battalion at Benghazi. I also missed the landing on Sicily because this time I was in hospital after being wounded at Wadi Akarit. So I was luckier than you. By the way, April the 6th coming up. 48th anniversary. Listener, it's now the 74th anniversary. Fred wrote this in 1991. By the way, Wolf, I've still got that Italian bane that you gave me. You got it off an Italian prisoner. I think you used it for an earth pin for the phones we used, remember? Now about Company Sergeant Major Stan Hollis. Do you know, Wilf, Stan Hollis was a corporal in France, 1940. He was a dispatch rider, and I remember him come roaring into our different positions, giving the officers and company, etc., directions about where the Germans were. I didn't really realise this until long after the war, when I thought back to France, 1940. He was promoted to CSM after Dunkirk. He was a real sergeant major, one of the lads off duty. Sadly, he died quite young, around 1970, I think, and his family had to sell his Victoria Cross. Perhaps I could tell you of France, 1940, Wolf. How was a Labour battalion we met up with the Germans, etc.? How I was found asleep on guard by the second in command of the battalion. I was put on company office the next morning. I remember how we had our first baptism of fire and how we, with only rifles and 50 rounds of ammo, fired on the Germans at a range of 400 yards. We'd no mortars, no brens, no anti-tank rifles. We, d- we did have a Lewis gun, a 1914-18 to one. It used to jam up after a few rounds. One time I was left with a Lewis gun on my own, as a rear-guard action out in the middle of nowhere. Jerry didn't turn up. Thank goodness. I was on my own once or twice up in the desert, but way out in front of our positions, in a sanger, a listening post. All I had was a bloody rifle and fifty rounds, all on my own, listening for Germans. I was bricking it. I retreated on my own, and I'm still here. Your calling update, Wilf. I wasn't in France then. We were chased out of France on the 31st of May 1940. Anyway, you went to Plumer Barracks at Plymouth, and just up the road from there was Seaton Barracks, remember? Well, that's where I was called up to. Me and George Suzuki. As we went through the guardhouse, we were given a number. George was 46179989, and mine was four later at 993. And I wonder who the three blokes were between us, and whether they got through the war and where they are now. I do get the usual aches and pains. As the song goes, some days are diamonds, some days are stone, some days troubles won't leave me alone. 
You know, Wilf, about TV and the films. Those blokes firing those automatic rifles into thin air. I reckon they did that for the cameras. As you say, Wilf, it was very rare for us to fire at random. I reckon they would have charged us for the rounds. Anyway, we were told not to fire like that in 1940 in France. The first person I saw killed was in France in 1940. A French soldier running for cover just behind me was blasted as he ducked behind a tree. We lost quite a few of our blocks there in that year. You know, Wilf, you never were in a panic. I remember when you came over to the mortars, you were so composed and didn't give a damn about the enemy shells or mortars. You were always a rebel, Wilf, and it was those types of blokes who won this bloody war for us. If it had been for me, the war would have been going on now. You were always getting 28 days for something or another, Wilf. You were a soldier. They, whoever they were, said you wasn't a soldier until you'd been wounded at least once. You qualified, Wilf, twice over. I remember the newspaper. Crusader and Reader's Digest. Do you know, Wilf, I never played cards, drank or smoked until I think we arrived in Egypt, so thereabouts. At one time, Wilf, whilst we were under fire, I used to smoke three cigarettes at a time, one I was puffing, one ready lit, and one out of the packet ready. I'd never had a beer until we were overseas. Must have been around Gazala. Remember Gazala, Wilf, first time we were in the line. I'm still reading your typewritten biography, Wilf. I've just got to the part about Peter McKenna. If I'm sadly right, he was on leave with me and some others here in Tooting before D-Day, and he died of his wounds in Normandy. He was with a company commander. What company, I don't recall. Do you know, Wilf, once in the desert we got a ration. I'm looking at my diary of Saturday, February the 27th, 1943. It was a naffy ration per man. Five bars choc. 180 woodbines. One tube toothpaste. One tin of condensed milk. One tin meat and beans. A tin of Andrew's salts. Ten packets of book matches. One tin of boiled sweets. Two tablets of soap. And extras, we got two bars of chocolate. Two packets of biscuits. Two more bags of sweets and half a pound of tea. A large tin of fruit, one tin of blacking and one tin of ideal milk. By the way, Wolf, did you ever get to Cairo on leave? You must have had some leave after you came out of hospital at different times. I got seven days leave from that transit camp, more like a concentration camp. Hitched a lift to Cairo and met up with a bloke, a private... Said he'd just come back from behind the lines in Greece. I noticed his shoulder flashes, a winged dagger. It wasn't until the SAS was mentioned in different situations not so long ago, I realised he was an SAS man. So the SAS must have been formed during the war. I liked your story about the 18-set, Wilf. What about those 38-sets and the 46-sets? What did we do with those sets after we landed, Wilf? You know, on D-Day. As I remember, they had two set wave bands. 
How did you land and who with on D-Day, Wolf? I was with the mortar platoon, Captain Lee. Whatever happened to him? Our carrier touched down, beached at 0820. H hour was 0730 for the companies. Do you remember McAllister, Wolf? He was a bloke who never swore or drank, but he nearly blew his top and cursed and blinded and stamped his feet as he stood and watched us ride out of that camp near Winchester to embark on the LCTs. He was left behind for some reason, and he wanted to be there with us. Whatever happened to him? I think you were with the anti-tank platoon, Wolf. I always remember our first target, a barn, we blew it to pieces. There was no one in it. Do you know, Wilf, we fired an average of 200 bombs a day from when we landed to when we withdrew from Bemmel up there in Holland. What a relief that was. Everything packed in our Bren carriers. I really liked those carriers. They could bowl along at 60 miles an hour at times, but track pins were in short supply and our tracks would come off. The pins held the tracks together. Suddenly we'd lose a track and stop. We'd have to push the carrier back onto the track and use nails to secure them. I'd like to visit those places, Wilf, wouldn't you? Nijmegen, Elst, Bemmel. Do you remember seeing the German rocket plane bomb the bridge at Nijmegen? They've got one of those planes in the Science Museum here in London. Do you remember how we used to repair those 38 sets, paint the ammo boxes, etc., up there in Holland? Do you remember that house we were at, in Bemmel, in Holland? The electric light was still on and we laid the table in the kitchen and cooked rabbit. One night a German Nebelwerfer threw over ten rockets, straddling the house, and you and me dived down into the cellar with our phone, and we all but fell down the cellar steps taking that phone with us, remember? We were pulled up with a jerk because the line wouldn't reach. Did you ever see a Nebelwerfer, Wolf? I saw one at the War Museum here in London. Six barrels in a circle fired electrically from a distance. They were originally for smoke shells. Then going out of that cellar to mend the company lines. Ugh! Never knowing when a mortar shell was going to come over. You couldn't hear the damn things coming until they hit the ground. You just heard that swish too late. And do you recall that awful night when we had three mortars on standby to cover a patrol coming back from the recce patrol. We were to fire 60 rounds around midnight if they got into trouble. This was Normandy. The patrol got back okay, but the order came through from Battalion HQ to fire off the rounds. I stood by on the phone in a bloody deep hole and number one mortar fired, then number two, then number three mortar fired, but the bomb hit the overhanging branches of a tree and blew it up and caught all the mortar bombs primed lying around. Flames shot up into the night sky and bombs were going off in all directions. Only one casualty. Sergeant Law, he was killed. He was standing near my slit trench with me on the phone. In my diary it happened at 02.30 hours on Thursday the 27th of July 
1944. And that night, at 2100 hours, we were relieved by the Dorset Regiment. Listener, the Commonwealth War Grave Commission records do indeed show that Sergeant Sam Law, aged 26, died on this date. He was from Skipton in Yorkshire, England. And his epitaph, No length of time can dim life's happy memories. Loving wife, Mary. The next day, Friday the 28th, we were four miles from Bayer, and I moved to S Company HQ with you. You built a shelter. On Saturday after that, you went to see George Formby in the afternoon, remember? Sicily. That party we had, where you and I had too much vino. It was on Saturday the 9th of October, 1943. We left Sicily October the 17th. It was a Sunday on the Otranto from Augusta, but we didn't sail until the 23rd, and we reached Algiers two days later. We revamped. We arrived in England on November the 5th, 1943. We got off the ship three days later and went and stayed at Riddlesworth Camp in Thetford. God knows where that is. Do you remember, Wolf, when you came to London after the war? It was the Friday, 2nd of November, 45. We got the train from Pickering and got into London all 700 hours on Saturday the 3rd of November. You must have stayed at my place. I can't remember clearly, Wolf. Anyway, Suzuki, you and me had a game or two of snooker at Streetham. Then you and I went to the Streetham Astoria and saw Captain Eddie, a film. And then we had quite a few beers around. Blood if I can remember, Wilf, can you? How I managed to write a diary at any time, I do not know. Wednesday, August the 2nd, 44. Shaw and I went to look at some German guns in concrete on the coast of Normandy. Hmm. You know, Wilf, I remember seeing you walking back during one do with your left arm behind your head. And I thought, blimey, there goes old Shaw, wounded again. If I remember rightly, you were wounded three times, Wilf. Once at Alamein in the arm on October the 24th, 42. Didn't you also get a bullet in your steel helmet which left a bruise on your forehead? It was a light machine gun, Italian. <laughs> it put a hole in your helmet, but not in your head. I've still got my D-Day detachment duty card. Zilkin, 18 set. Assembly area for embarkation C-14. Embark in landing craft tank 4. Unit serial number 27467-2520. Under the orders of OC Mortar Platoon. Time of landing, H plus 45 minutes. Place of landing... King Green Beach. Open listening, watch H-60. Also, communications will be established at H-15. I landed on Gold Beach at 0820 in a mortar carrier. Sailing to Egypt, 1941. That Moulton merchant cruiser had two six-inch guns on the stern. If either of them had been fired, I reckon that ship would have fallen apart. 
All of us were in very great danger from those U-boats. We wouldn't have stood a chance if we'd been hit. I was glad when we got off at Durban. The crew were from Goa, and I wouldn't like to have had their job. As you say, it was sunk later. I think we were on that ship about six weeks. I do remember, though, as we sailed south, the weather got better and better. The days were lovely and warm and sunny, and the nights balmy, the flying fish, and in the sky the Southern Cross. Yes, I remember as well the first part of our journey, the rough seas, rolling and pitching, and all those poor blokes who were seasick and couldn't eat their grub. I remember going to the galley and getting great big buckets of boiling tea and staggering down the corridors to the mess deck. I got seven days leave in Cairo from the transit camp, assault courses, etc., and then I was put on a draft going to Italy. Reinforcements for the Italian do. I was in a bunch of around 20 blokes with an officer. We sailed from Egypt on the Cap Saint-Jacques ship to Sicily. I didn't like the idea of going to Italy. I wanted to get back to the 6th. I heard a rumour that 50 div were on the island, so after the first night in this camp, and I knew they were all moving out the next morning for Italy, I got up early with all my kit and sneaked out, past the guard, etc., and started to walk, goodness knows where. I was really worried. I was AWOL, and you know what that meant. After walking some time, I saw the 50 div TT sign, and blow me if I didn't see a truck with TT on it. I hitched a lift and they dropped me off at Divisional HQ. I went in and said I was from the 6th Battalion. No questions asked. They got me transport to the 6th at Teomina. There, no questions asked. Looking back, Wolf, I don't know how I did it. If the battalion hadn't been there... I often wondered what happened to that officer when they found one of his men gone AWOL from there. Remember that time in Letterjani in Sicily, Wilf, where we, and no doubt several others, drank a little too much vino? Who was that sergeant major who gave us some entertainment, as an old man playing balls? And we booed him off the stage. Yes, I do remember those tomatoes and that vino, drinking the bloody stuff from one-pint mugs, like beer. That wine was like vinegar. Ouch. The one wine I did like was called masala, a sweet dessert wine. By the way, Letterjani now has holiday apartments and hotels around it. I saw pictures of it in a brochure I sent for once. That's the way I travel these days, Wilf. Send for the brochures. So you're living in Oldham, Wilf. I read that the remains of a seven-foot-six giant lie in the vaults of Oldham Parish Church. A nice place to live, Wilf. London's all right, but I didn't like it. Too noisy, too dirty, too much traffic. To cross the roads like going over the top. Down there, open the windows first thing, and all you can hear is the birds coughing in the trees. I often wondered what happened to those ships. The good old Multan. The Goanese crew who used to wash the decks. I think I remember too the destroyer Jackal, but not the Jaguar or the Kingston. 
I came back on a mine-laying destroyer named Abdiel. Or am I dreaming? Those ships were new, the Mauritania and all now sadly broken up. That picture of Lord Sutherland I recognised right away. If you hadn't told me who it was, I would have said it was Maurice Sutherland. I remembered him mainly from Cyprus. He was on a charge, a 252. What for, I can't remember, but he elected to defend himself, which he did, and was found not guilty. HMS Hospital Ship Maine, Wolf. Any idea how she fared? On the hospital, we were stretched on board at Benghazi, sailed down the Med to Tripoli at night. She had all her lights burning, no blackout, and during the day she was picking her way through stray mines. Wolf, in the desert, do you remember the nights? No moon, no light. Do you recall a long German plane, way up high? He'd circle around, firing a machine gun down on us. It was what they called an haranguing. Or the lav, a long pole over a deep slit trench. Marston House in England, 1941. What I remember of that billet was sleeping on bare boards, somewhere in the top of the house. Someone, a civilian, loaned us a radio for two shillings a week. Doing cookhouse fatigue, fire picket, quarter guard when the studs on your boots had to be polished. Never did excuse duties as stick man. And guard duties, stuck out somewhere on the perimeter wall, or oh, two hundred hours at a wooden gate, all on my own with a fixed bayonet. Oh, happy days. And Wilf, that scheme we went on as Exmoor, what a do. Yes, I do remember those poor sods, two of them, suffocated under that tarpaulin from exhaust fumes. I remember too how it snowed. It was bitterly cold, and we'd no great coats with us. How we all huddled under our ground sheets all night, and come the dawn and the cooks arrived on the scene, and they lit those flamethrowers that heated up the ovens, remember? Do you know, some blokes were still coming back to the house a week later. My feet were in a terrible state. I'd taken my boots off before I got the truck back. I'd never have got them back on again. We used to do 30-mile route marches there, Wolf, remember? One incident I remember was coming back on a three-tonner. We'd been out on a scheme or something. I was sitting on the tailboard, marching order, small pack, etc. The lorry pulled into the forecourt. I was sitting face inwards when some idiot pulled the pins out and let the tailboard down, and me with it. I went out flat on my back, but luckily my small pack took the brunt, and I got up smiling. Who'd have thought, Wolf, back there in Normandy, in those slit trenches, hedgerows, damp, rain, mortars firing, no future. I remember how you used to come over and get my 38 sets working, and how you used to relieve me on the telephone, which we had to keep open all night, 24 hours a day. As you say, Wolf, all that Morse code was a waste of time. Direct speech on telephone was really the thing. Did you notice the German phones were far better than ours? Handsets like they used today. Remember, we used them on the lines we had. 
That reminds me, Wilf. In 1940, when I went to France, we had a rifle, a short Lee Enfield, 50 rounds ammo, a bayonet, and sometimes we had a Ross rifle. Canadian, I think. All that flag waving, etc. But they were using army things that went out before the 1914 to 18 war. Useless. Anyway, we went to France really to build a landing place for our fighter planes. It was really weird, Wilf, looking back on those days. Desert again. What were the turn-ups for on those shorts? God knows. Can't answer that one, Wilf. I was watching a film on TV called Nine Men, made in 1943, about nine men in the western desert surrounded by Italians. At one time they were throwing grenades and I thought, that's Wilf and his grenade action at Alamein. What was the outcome of your action, Wilf? Reminds me of the time up the blue, when we were out on one of those jock columns, remember? C Company Captain Hull and signaller George Suzuki were dug in on a ridge on the top. The signal officer, in all his wisdom, said, Private Zilkin, go up and tell those up there, keep off the skyline. Up I started walking, rifle at the trail, crouching until I came upon Captain Hull and George, heads down in a slit trench. No sooner had I saw the pair in that trench when the two-inch mortars from Jerry started dropping all around us. Captain Hull blew his top. Get the bloody hell out of here, or words to that effect, and if one of those shells drops in here, I'll have you court-martialed. I crawled out of there quick, but didn't get far before Jerry had me in range and dropped a few more all around me. I froze as each bomb seemed to get nearer. I could feel the heat off them as they exploded. I just lay there, head down, but I felt unusually calm. I thought the next one would be it. They say, whoever they are, that where there's no hope, there's no fear. Then the mortars stopped, and I got up and ran back to Battalion HQ, and believe it or not, I told the signal officer what an idiot he was, sending someone up on the ridge to tell them something they already knew. You should have seen the faces of Captain Hull and George when I came upon them in that trench. They could have killed me. Happy days about Cyprus, eh, Wilf? What I remember about Cyprus, I got sandfly fever and a lovely week's leave at Lonaka up there in the mountains. Fantastic. I'm settled in now, Wilf, and hoping that you can get some golf in in spite of this weather. It's raining hard now outside, Sunday 12 noon. I'm about to go out for my usual pint on a Sunday, Wilf. Long gone days. Exmoor, Western Desert, Loch Fine, Normandy, Marston House. Ah, those good old days. Ouch! I wonder whatever happened to Dibble. Well, listener... How good was that? I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading it, drafting it, editing it and recording it. And I'm looking forward to listening to it at some point in the next day or two. Um, Yeah, really good stuff. 
I've got some more to come, to be honest. There's quite a few more bits and pieces in the PS. And there's an absolutely stunning finale at the very end. So please don't miss that, because you will be sorry. Um, Next episode. I'm still putting my ideas together for episode 27. It's, It's going to revolve around a note that my dad wrote about the 50th anniversary of D-Day, the celebrations in France in 1994. So it's an old soldier's memories, more memories, of a very emotional few days when he revisits old ground that he'd visited 50 years ago. So that's the first thing, and reading it to my mum the other day certainly brought a few tears to my eyes, I can tell you. Uh, Also, I've been digging around Dad's old army boxes and found all sorts of souvenirs and stuff he's written about that isn't in the book or any previous episodes of the show. Uh, So I'm going to share some of those with you too, as well as some great photographs going up in the show notes of the Queen, Duke Duke of Edinburgh. Also, I'm going to include some nice extracts from Dad's battalion war diaries, which I got from the National Archives. There'll be a few more unexpected surprises too, and uh, I don't even know what they are myself yet. Uh, It's a poignant reminiscence, um, something different, so look forward to seeing you joining me. Listener, thank you so much for being here. As much fun as it is doing this show, I could not keep it up without the support that you give me. Uh, Thanks also to Wilf Shaw, who's turning 98 on 5th of February 2018, uh, pretty much as this episode is published. If anybody wants to talk to Wilf, he's on Facebook or also in the uh, World War II talk uh, forum. Would you believe that? Of course, yeah, 98, and he's doing all the technology under the sun. Happy birthday, Wolf, and thank you so much for digging out Fred's letters for me to review. Uh, What a lot of priceless history we've heard and recorded for posterity. Listener, if you enjoyed this show, then if you have a moment after the end, I would be grateful if you could please take a few minutes just to post a, a review or a rating on the listening platform of your choice. It'll help keep the show up in the rankings and help other people to discover one of your favourite podcasts. Uh, Stay tuned, listener, because there's quite a lengthy PS coming up with some great stuff in it. You've been listening to the Fighting Through podcast, episode 26, The Zilkin Letters. Please do hear me next time. For now, I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. P.S. I started this episode thinking there was no photograph of Fred, but uh, bless my soul, I was just tinkering around with the show notes and noticed one of Wilf's photographs taken at Marston House, uh, which featured early in the war. Uh, And Wilf puts a caption to this photograph. He says, This was the dress issued to us prior to going to the Middle East War in 1941. We never wore any of it. Just like all the Morse sending and receiving we did, we never used it. All I can remember was using field telephones and the 18 set. On this photo, my mate Fred Zilkin is far right standing. So listener, would you just believe that? It's a shame Fred's wearing one of those hats because you can't see all of his face, but that square jaw of his is still very visible, so we can tell that it's Fred. Okay. Over the next few minutes, I'm going to do a few reflections on Fred's memoirs, uh, just reacting to stuff he talked about, which I didn't want to mention anything during 
the reading because it would have in, interrupted the flow. But I've got some nice little reflections coming up. I've got, don't forget, I've got Wolf's funny story about Fred. And then as my finale, if you like, I've got such a great tale about Dunkirk and the uh, rescue of these guys from the beaches. But first I'm going to reflect on uh, Stan Hollis's Victoria Cross because Fred was wondering what happened to his Victoria Cross. Well, Stan's medal was bought by medal collector Sir Ernest Harrison, OBE. And guess what? He only presented the medal to the Greenhowers Museum in Richmond, North Yorkshire. Uh, that was in 1997. And ten years later, he again bought for the Greenhowers Museum a Normandy hut which Hollis attacked on the run-up to the beach landing. If you want to know more about the mystery of the hut, nip to the show notes for this episode 26 and watch the video I made of the exit to Gold Beach. All I can say is what a great gesture from Sir Ernest Harrison. I'm hoping to visit the Greenhowers Museum this year, so when I do, I'll see if I can get a photograph of the medal and also a photo of my dad's bayonet, which he brought back from Dunkirk and which he later gave to the museum. The next point I was going to pick up was uh, Fred mentioned that as he and George Suzuki joined up, they were given numbers and Fred wondered who the three blokes were who got the numbers in between theirs, whether they got through the war and where they are now. Well, I've been looking these numbers up on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission records and uh, one particular number, 990, was Alfred Taylor, Royal Army Service Corps driver. Sadly, he was killed on May the 23rd, 1945, aged 26 from Surrey. Now, that's rather sad because this was just a couple of weeks after VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, on the 8th of May. But it was before Victory in Japan Day on August the 15th. Now, that means he was either fighting abroad after VE Day... ...or maybe he was in hospital in England and died from wounds after the war had ended... How sad would that be? The other two numbers must have survived because no grave record exists on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website. So there you go, Fred. There's your answer. Listener, I uh, I just want to reflect upon Fred's tribute to Wilf now and the fact that he didn't give a damn about anything. Fearless, in other words. It's interesting that Dad said pretty much the same about the rebellious elements within the ranks. Strange, but there was always the odd tough guy who didn't give a damn, so his turnout wasn't perfect. He hadn't had time to shave or something. Then he'd be put on a 252. Queer, but usually these were really good lads, and in later years when we were in action, they were the kind of boys who would do something very brave. Now, I've looked up uh, one of Fred's pals that he mentioned, Corporal Peter McKenna, and according to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website, he was indeed killed during the Normandy campaign, uh, aged 28, at Tilly-sur-Seuil, which is not far from Vieux-Bocage, and coincidentally, that's exactly where Dad was wounded just two days later when he was having tiffin. Wow. I've now got a nice story about the uh, Dunkirk rescue and another memory from Fred's letter. And this one's just great. Um, Wilf, 
Did you ever recall a bloke named Private Arthur Garner, a Cockney, who was in the Duke of Wellington's regiment, who with George Suzuki and myself, just us three, managed to stagger back to Dunkirk in 1940? I've never been able to trace him, ever. Just thought, Wilf, another boat I was on, the Lady of Man, a cross-channel steamer, we, George Suzuki and yours truly, went on it, with the rest of the Green Howards from Dover to Calais, sunning ourselves on deck in early May 1940. And blow me, after our hasty withdrawal down to the beaches at Dunkirk, we got on to, after much bombing, strafing and shelling, we staggered aboard, yes, the Lady of Man. This time we kept off deck, and got ourselves, George and me and Arthur, down below, the boat rolling from side to side as the bombs kept straddling the ship. Didn't worry George, though. He went and had a wash and brush up. <laughs> I love that one. Lovely little anecdote about our beloved Lady of Man. And one of the nice things for me personally about that anecdote is to realise that my dad was on that self-same ship coming back from the beaches. And uh, whilst these guys were downstairs, uh, my dad was upstairs on the top on the top deck with his eye firmly on a carly float in case the boat was sunk. I've got Wilf's story about Fred coming up in a second, but uh, one final reflection on Fred's letters. Uh, I just want to refer back to Fred's comments about the desert. Uh, how when they were on guard, they used to raid the ration dumps and drink the rusty radiator water from the Bren carriers. The only comment I was dying to make uh, was that all that rust they drank, awful as it was, must nonetheless have been good for their iron intake. For their iron intake, no wonder Wolf Shaw's still trespassing at the age of ninety-eight, as he puts it himself. Madhu, his face has turned orange, but <laughs> at least he's still alive. Multivitamin tablets eat your heart out. He's Wolf's story about Fred. Bye bye. See you next time. I can tell you one instance. I can give you an instance of one of his uh, sense of humour. We, it was insisted upon us to signal us when we were taking messages. How, how secret the, uh, the, the messages were, you know. Yeah. And uh, not to disclose and talk about anything in it from the message to anybody, you know. On this particular day, Fred was sat at the uh, telephone taking a message, writing it down, you know. And he wrote this message down, and uh, when, he, when he finished taking the message, he, got, he put it in an envelope, sealed, sealed the envelope, and he wrote on the outside. Highly secret, burn before reading. Tell <laughs> <laughs> me that as well. <laughs> <laughs>